Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. Hey, this is Tommy Yanoulis, one of the founders of Ops Analytica. I want to thank you for checking out the Order Up podcast. If you're looking to run better, safer, and more profitable restaurants, I highly encourage you to start managing by checklist and using the Ops Analytica Inspector to help you hold your managers more accountable and to get that increased visibility into your daily operations. Check us out online at opsanalytica.com or just search Restaurant Checklist app. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Order Up. This is Tommy Yernolis. I'm going to be your host today, and I am super excited to welcome uh, Chef David Buchanan to the podcast. Uh, I've run across David uh, on his website, uh, chefresources.com, and also through his LinkedIn group. And uh, he was kind enough to come join us today. So welcome, Chef. Thanks. It's going to be a great time to be here with you. <laughs> cool. Thank you. So uh, just to remind everybody, the, the format of the interviews in the podcast is that we ask the same five questions to each of our guests, and then we let them answer them. And that's kind of it. So we'll just get started. So, Chef, question number one, numero uno here is, could you do us a favor and just tell us what you're doing today and then take us through your career progression from your first job in the industry sort of to where you are now? Yeah, well, currently my time is pretty much divided between uh, Blackfish Wild Salmon Grill at the Tulalip Resort and running the website chefsresources.com. Um, I've been at Tulalip uh, in Blackfish for eight years and opened that restaurant there and been running the website for, I believe, seven years. Um, as far as progression goes, yeah, I'm one of the guys that started off as a dishwasher at Denny's, like Jeepers, over 30 years ago. And I wanted to become a cook, but the uh, manager knew that I was kind of in transition looking at stuff. So he wasn't, you know, he wasn't too keen on giving me the opportunity because he didn't know if I'd stay. So what I do is I bust my butt, get all caught up on dishes, go in and talk to Art, the lead line cook. He let me cook. I would uh, spend an hour up there, run back, get caught up on dishes and just kind of wash, rinse, repeat that cycle until I finally got good enough to be hired as a cook with no training. So um, I know many of us have kind of done that routine. Um, after that, where did I go? Oh, I finally ended up at Oyster Bar on Chuckanut Drive, really gorgeous drive here in Washington State. And it was my first time in a upper scale uh, dining house where they made everything from scratch. So that really opened my eyes to what cooking is really about. And I started, started to enjoy cooking then. Um, spent, I believe, five years there and then went to New England Culinary Institute in Vermont. Um, and the executive chef I was working for at Top Notch talked me into completing one year at the school and then kind of interning with him. Um, so I did that. That was Chef Louis Chabot. Um, after that turn, I went back to the Oyster Bar as the chef this time and cool. spent some more time there. Um, then I headed into resort hotels at Semiyama Resort. Um, here in Washington State as their PM sous chef. Uh, then I went to, this is a great name, Useless Bay Golf Club. Um, <laughs> they named it that because Captain Cook 
uh, sailed into this bay, I don't know, 1800s, I guess. And it looked deep enough to sail into, but uh, he got stranded because it was shallow. So he named it Useless Bay. <laughs> Anyways, uh, it was a great place to work, cool people. Um, I had the opportunity to work with a manager there who was very much a type A personality. I'm a type B personality. We clashed for about six months because he didn't think that uh, a type B person could successfully run a place. And after that uh, kind of struggle, we became great friends. And now he knows type B people are excellent at managing restaurants as well. So anyways, that was a cool place. Um, headed back to Semiamu as the executive chef after that. Then I went into the business and industry sector for about three years at Boeing, um, working as a, well, I was actually through Compass Group and I was the executive chef of Eurus Boeing Everett. We served like 10,000 meals a day and I oversaw, I think eight different cafes and got to put out, oh gosh, what was it? Every year they do this massive, employee appreciation day and all the chefs and managers with Eurus would get together to help each other out. So we served 30,000 meals for a lunch gig there. So that was the biggest production that I've done. Learned a lot, but I really didn't enjoy working in the BNI sector. It was just, you know, it's very, very corporate. It's, you know, they seriously watch down right to the penny if we wanted to increase the price on you know a little milk carton it was a big hoopla to go through so and the creativity i really missed the creativity so i went uh and applied at uh the Tulalip resort when they had an opening um started off as their buffet chef for six months and then opened blackfish so that's where I'm at today. And while at Blackfish, um, one of our things there is uh, oysters. Uh, my restaurant's primarily a seafood house. And Washington State has roughly 65, well, not Washington State, Pacific Northwest has roughly 65 varieties of oysters available. So I've endeavored to serve all of them at some time or other, certainly not at the same time, but over the course of eight years, I've served 65 varieties there in the restaurant and started the website initially in order to document, you know, photos of the oysters, flavor profiles, and a way for me to remember stuff because my memory is so bad. Um, so now, if I need information, the website's become a resource for me and other people to find all kinds of stuff as far as profiles on fish, on oysters, uh, cheapers, um, kitchen management tools, um, Excel templates for chefs, so on and so forth. So that's kind of the wrap on that. Cool. So let's talk really quickly about the 30,000 meal lunch. Like what did you serve and how did you pull that off? Cause I think that's pretty uh, incredible. Okay. Yeah, that, that was grueling. So let's see, first of all, lots of help. Um, the venue that I oversaw had, I believe 24 ovens in it. 
and um, the next door venue, they didn't have anywhere near as many uh, ovens, but they certainly had staff. So what we would do is Eurest would have all the managers, all the chefs from the region were required to help out. And they all took different outlets where we would serve this from. Let's see, I think we did it from three different venues um, there at Boeing Field. And let's see, I we started obviously prepping. I think it was it was over a ton of beef ribs and barbecue chicken and baked beans. I had like 240 four inch hotel pans of beans we had to cook. And um, so obviously we start prepping like a week in advance on the things that we could. And then it started at 10 a.m. So at midnight, let me back up. I got off at 4 p.m. the day before, stayed at a hotel, uh, got like three hours of sleep, came back at midnight, started cooking at midnight in order to get the ball rolling at 10 a.m. and wrapped up at like five o'clock, I think that day. So yeah, midnight till 5 p.m. the following day to get that sucker out. Uh, huge success, but extremely painful. Yeah, no doubt. Well, and just think, like, you, you can start prepping a week in ahead, but it's not like you have, did you have to bring in, like, refrigerator trucks and throw them in the parking lot? So you could, No, like... actually, Boeing was so huge. We we had a massive, massive uh, walk-in and, well, multiple walk-ins, but we were able to store it all there. The oven space was actually the issue, um, and storage space as far as hot boxes went. We rounded up all the hot boxes from the entire region. I, and then plus had to rent some. So that was probably the biggest hassle. Wow. And so then you said too, that you started the website just really as a way to kind of document the different oysters that you were serving. And it's just, it's grown from there. Is that, would that be a fair assessment? Pretty much. I always kind of had in my mind that I, I wanted it to be a, a tool for me and other chefs. So, so yeah, now it's evolved into, um, Profiles for seafood, profiles for oysters, lots of stuff on kitchen management, you know, some knickknack kind of stuff, um, plenty of tables as far as conversions goes, you know, hotel pan sizes, a scooper sizes, all that nice. kind of thing. Um, and now I'm looking at, while well, I'm working on some productivity stuff, which we'll get into later, um, sales mix stuff. That was a big thing this past year was... Uh, at the casino, we went through a retraining on what are we look, what makes us profitable in the kitchen? Is it food cost percentage or is it margin? And I'd had something like that on my website. Um, great example is: Do you want to have, if you sell say a thousand lobsters at a fifty percent food cost, you know, as a chef, you got a crappy food cost. And if the management doesn't understand that, they're going to say, chef, you got a crappy food cost. Well, yeah, but I put like a ton of money to the bottom line. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if I sell a thousand grilled cheese sandwiches at a 25% food cost, oh, you look awesome on your food cost, but you've made no money. So we went through this whole thing about looking at comparing both. 
yeah, good food cost is great, but really how much money was driven to the bottom line? And that's based on margin. So now we end up comparing our theoretical food cost, which is based on the food cost of all the uh, items sold off of our menu. That tells us what our food cost should be um, if there is zero waste or whatever. Comparing that against our uh, actual food cost and trying to be within a few points of that. So, so yeah, that was a cool learning experience. And to see that that's finally out there in the industry and is becoming more common now. Yeah, I remember at uh, hotel restaurant school, the teacher was like, you know, he used that exact example of the lobster example, 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 example. It's a $25 or $30 plate and it costs you 15 to make, but you can't, you can't take margin to the bank, right? So it, it's interesting to hear that. Now, let me ask you this, because we're just sort of, we're talking around food costs. Where did you got, how much inventory are you guys, like, are you, are you doing full inventory every week at the, uh, at the casino? Nope, not weekly. We do it monthly and each chef is responsible for doing his individual venue. Okay, cool. And then if you obviously have like a, a huge fluctuation and you determine that that fluctuation is real and you and you can't figure it out from a theoretical perspective, you might step up inventory at that point because you're going, hey, maybe we have some thievery or something going on because there's, a, there's no reason we should be at like 36%. But if it's within a couple of points of being in line and your, your uh, contribution margin is flowing correctly, most of the time, everything's going to be cool. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah, they're pretty realistic there. So long as we, if we can identify that we have a problem, and actually our our P and Ls are pretty pretty extensive as far as the amount of information that uh, we cover on there. So long as we can um, address the issue and give a reasonable explanation for it, and then follow up you know, to make sure that it's uh, addressed appropriately. Our P&Ls generally go really well, or at least mine do. So, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for that uh, explanation of everything. Let's move on to question number two. What is sort of the big project or initiative that you're working on right now? Uh, something new that I'm excited about. There's a website that just got up and running called seafoodprofessionals.org. It's still very much in its infancy state. Um, and it's part of the Association of International Seafood Professionals. Um, I was a couple people from LinkedIn reached out to me. Um, and they're building this site with they want to bring together professionals, uh, seafood professionals from all sectors of the industry, whether they're fishermen, wholesalers, retailers, chefs, journalists, government agencies, all of that, uh, consumers. And the goal that they have in mind is to build a collaborative, um, instructional, informational resource for all of them and also to kind of standardize um, information, whether that be on sustainability, um, credentials for sustainability. You know, we've got several here in the States, but other countries have different ones. And if you're buying your fish from other countries, how can you verify? Um, they also want to work on market names, that kind of thing, make those more standard. 
I guess uh, Australia has very structured market names, whereas in the U.S., there's you know a fish can be like butterfish, black cod, um, sable fish. It's all the same fish, three different market names. Uh, so, anyways, they they'd like to help standardize that as well. So, the site uh, kind of has an area on collaboration, an area for resources, a starting area for recipes, which is kind of cool in that they want to promote sustainable seafood. Um, so in the recipe section, they want to say it's for, you know, um, rock cod or uh, uh, rockfish. Along with that, they might list, say, eight or ten other species of fish that the same recipe is going to work for to make it more flexible for people. So that's something that I'm helping to collaborate on, and it's just barely begun. So we'll see where it goes a year from now. Oh, that's really cool. And, you know, I just it, it's amazing what the web is doing for our industry because – there's so, I mean, everybody before, unless you were with a big chain, you were just kind of out there on your own, you know, and trying to find some of this, figure this stuff out was tough. And now with these kind of resources, with chef resources, with the one you just mentioned, it gives people an opportunity to like, you know, I don't have to leave Maine, but I can still get some of the best information from people around the world on what the deal is here. Yeah. You know, I, I'm such a big fan of Google. You can find almost anything um on any given topic and uh you know for for the website it's me trying to do the seo stuff so that i actually rank for some of the phrases that i i want to be found on but uh i think the internet is an awesome tool for really anybody certainly for a chef yeah for sure YouTube's amazing for chefs too, because you can actually like search videos and see somebody doing something and go, Oh, that's how you, you know, pull the back skin off a rib or whatever. It's pretty amazing. Totally. I, I use it a lot of time at home when I'm trying to be adventurous. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Um, but I don't, I, I have little kids. So yeah, a lot of times my adventure is just making chicken tenders, but you know, <laughs> which they appreciate. Absolutely. Uh, what is the one thing that you thought the industry or your business would be doing right now that it's not? Um, I would say, just a second, there's a jet flying overhead here. <laughs> I, I was hoping that by now we would have figured out how to adequately compensate the kitchen staff. Um, one of your other questions that ties into this is what keeps me up at night. I'm understaffed right now on cooks and the whole region here, well, actually it appears to be a problem across most of the country that finding qualified cooks is becoming increasingly difficult. I remember reading um, Thomas Keller in per se was losing cooks to the front of the house because the front of the house was making more money. So he uh, converted over to the service charge system. And I don't know if he's still doing that. That was like a year ago or something. But um, I'm thinking that 
that just might be the way the industry needs to go, um, at least for mid to high end restaurants. I know in Seattle with the whole 15 now thing that uh, is in the process of being implemented, there have been, it's really hurt the restaurants down there. Um, so a number of those restaurants have gotten rid of tipping and have gone to a service charge system where they essentially pool the service charge and are able to compensate uh, the kitchen staff and uh, dishwashers and so on. So that to me is the biggest challenge in the industry right now. Um, like I say, it's, it's taking us many, many months to hire qualified cooks right now. Do you guys have any partnerships with the uh, the local culinary schools in the area? We do. Um, I guess the downside on that is like Le Cordon Bleu is about, it's South Seattle. So most of those students aren't willing to relocate and certainly don't want to spend the hour and a half trek through Seattle to come on up. We take a number of them on as interns and have seen uh, some of them come on permanently, but we haven't been very successful in, you know, drawing people, a, a number of people who actually want to relocate north, um, which I think ties back into that wage because right now with Seattle paying the 15 or whatever higher, um, I think they're either staying locally down there. Yeah, yeah, I'm not really sure. So yeah, we have targeted that and the uh, Seattle Art Institute as well and some of the other um, tech schools, but not really having a whole lot of luck. There's a really cool school here in Denver called, uh, oh God, I'm gonna say it wrong, Emory Riddle. And uh, they are a vocation school, but it's like post high school vocation school and you work full time and then you get like one day off a week to go to class so you're, you know, it's for people who can't afford to go spend like 50,000 on culinary school. And so it's a great program because you're getting tons of practical training in the kitchen, working like a full-time cook would. And then, you know, you just get guaranteed like Thursday night off to go back down to school and take your classes for the day and stuff. It's a sweet program, but no, that sounds awesome. Uh, I've been kicking around that idea. And so as the executive chef, maybe actually trying to start some type of an accredited program here that would work like that because as you know in our industry uh, a solid resume is equally as good as and maybe even better than you know a culinary graduate um, with the possible exception of being a you know a culinary instructor sure it's such a weird thing right now because they got rid of all the Votech schools right you used to go you could also go in high school to be a chef but now they kind of got rid of a lot of the tech schools too as a part of public education. And that's, I think also hurt the industry as well. But yeah. And the fact that, you know, you go to culinary school, you spend 40 or $50,000 and you're, you're not going to come out of there as a chef. You're going to come out and probably make 13 to 18 bucks an hour, yep. um, which again is a problem in our industry. But restaurants, you know, you can only charge your guests so much. You can't just jack up the pricing on the menus in order to give better wages to the cooks because then you won't get the guests. So it's definitely a dilemma. Yeah, it, it is. And Seattle, I think, handled it really poorly by kind of attacking the franchise restaurants. 
I met a guy at the NRA show who owns a bunch of subways and he's actually very lucky because his subways are on campuses and stuff. So he's got the volume part figured out. But, you know, if you just owned a subway in, even though you might live, you might be a Seattle native and live in Seattle city and you bought a subway, you're paying higher wages than the same guy in your strip center who might just be, you know, might be your neighbor and just has Tommy's sub shop. So I feel like the the idea was good of let's start to raise the wages. I could I understand that, but I don't like how they implemented it and it kind of like went after certain types of businesses. But that's my own opinion, you know. Whatever. Well, yeah, that's mine too. Actually, I wrote an article on Chef's Resources about uh, the fifteen now thing because I think it's going to make it really difficult for high school kids now. Um, or younger people to get a job down in Seattle because if I got to pay 15 bucks, you know, I'm going to pay the guy that's 20 something. I'm not going to pay some 18 year old kid who's might be a flake, you know? Uh, so I think kids are going to have a harder time and, you know, coffee shops shoot. I don't know how much coffee has gone up in Seattle, but I'm sure the price has been jacked up quite a bit. So hmm. yeah, we'll see how many places actually go out of business because of this. Well, you know, I was in high school. I worked at a Jiffy Lube, which, by the way, you never want me working on your car. So <laughs> whatever, because I am horrible. But uh, I worked at a Jiffy Lube, but I was in like 10th grade. And my parents, we went to like Florida for vacation. And then I came back and I was my parents were taking us somewhere else for vacation. And I remember all the Jiffy Lube employees were like full time guys. And they were like, if you don't come, if you take this other trip, you can't work here anymore. And I remember as a high school student, it's like, I don't care. You know, right? I live at home. I have no bills. Like this is just something I'm doing. Like I'm, I vacuum cars over here. I suck. What do you want from me? Like, but I, I'm not going to not go on vacation with my folks. Like, well, first of all, that wasn't even an option. I wasn't going to just stay at home. You know, like that wasn't even a deal. So that's the that's what you're like to speak to that point. High school kids don't have the same needs as like a twenty something who's on their own, who's got to like pay the rent and pay their bills. And so you're right. High school kids don't really care as much. That's why there was a minimum wage because nobody expected a high, like they didn't expect most high school kids to be supporting a family of three, you know, and having all these mortgages. These were just part-time jobs. So yeah, why would you ever hire a high school kid who who's going to have wrestling practice or football or, you know, going to only be there for three months to do anything because why well, I can't pay 15 bucks for that. I got to find an adult who needs this money and is going to come and do this job. So then you have all these, you got to have a whole generation of kids with no skills. You know, I started working at 14 with a worker's permit. My mom used to drop me off at the mall so I could make cheesesteaks. So yeah, I think this is like, you know, have like large range ramifications over the next couple of years. Well, yeah. And I think, I mean, those businesses are going to have to recoup their losses somehow. They're going to raise their prices. So three years from now, I think the standard of living is just going to be higher and it's the ratio is going to be the same as it was. So what difference is it going to make? I think it puts more of a hurt on, you know, maybe it would help out those people at the very lowest end, but I would have hoped that most of those would be, you know, your people working at McDonald's or people that are looking, you know, getting starter jobs and trying to move up in their career um, as opposed to make it, you know, more of a permanent lifestyle kind of job. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, 
we and uh, we sort of we merge those two questions together, but it'll be my last point in this. But like, you know, people go, oh, well, they work at McDonald's or whatever. But I, I knew a, I worked in the kitchen with a guy whose stepdad was uh, had started as a burger flipper at McDonald's in like the late 60s, early 70s. And when I knew this is early 90s, when I worked with this guy, that guy had worked his way up through McDonald's and owned 14 McDonald's. So, like, that's not every, obviously, McDonald's employee, but, like, you know, there's a lot of people who start off in fast food. I actually know tons of people who are very wealthy who have done very well in fast food. So, you know, that's what's cool about this industry is it's one of the few industries where you can actually make some real money and own a business and you don't have to go through college. You can start at the bottom and work your way up and figure it out. And so I feel like... I don't want to be dissing that kind of work either because like you say i i know a few people also that have gone through um but to the point they started off you know managing the till and then worked their way up to become managers become district managers to become you know um i don't want to seem you know they've just learned better skills and certainly yeah. McDonald's and uh, those type of franchises have excellent, excellent programs on teaching people um, how to manage. Oh, yeah. It's in, yeah. I mean, yeah, if you can manage a McDonald's, you can manage any restaurant in the world because they've got, that's a hard gig. Yeah, they got oh. it dialed in. Yeah, for sure. Well, so we kind of tackled two questions with that one. So that's cool. Um, we're coming up on question number five, which is, yeah, you know, just sort of recount one of the funniest or worst things that's happened to you in your career. Emphasis on funny, but you know, worse is fine too. <laughs> um, probably when I was in uh, Vermont, um, the uh, place that I worked at took in a lot of culinary interns, and in fact, I was one at the time, even though I had some uh, cooking experience behind me as well. But anyway. We had this one intern who was Mr. Know-it-all. Anything that uh, the chef or sous chef or anybody tried to instruct this guy on, he was, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know how to do that. I can do that. And most of the time he didn't. So uh, one day the the chef had had enough of it, and uh, he wanted the sous chef to teach the guy a lesson. So the sous got a big pot of water boiling, gave the guy some live Maine lobsters, and said, Okay, you know how to cook these, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know how to cook these. And he says, all right, now these are expensive. So if if you wreck these, the chef's going to be really pissed at you, man. Oh, I got this. I got this. So he gets ready to put them in there. He says, now, you got to remember, if the lobsters turn red, you've destroyed them. And chef's going to have your butt. So <laughs> I got to throw these lobsters in there. And the Sioux, God, they're turning red. Stir the water, stir the water. And the kids just stirring the water like crazy, furiously. And we're all just standing back laughing at him. And uh, yeah, of course, the lobsters turned red. So <laughs> that's awesome. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Chef, for coming on. Uh, this is the part of the podcast where I let you just sort of plug uh, your websites and stuff and what you're working on. And then uh, so. Hit it. What would you like everybody to know about you or where can they find you online? Well, let's see. I've got the Chef's Resources group on LinkedIn. Um, There's about 30,000 members on that right now. And it's for chefs to share information, hopefully learn some things. 
And then, of course, my chefsresources.com website, which uh, I don't sell anything there, but I have tons of information. I'm always looking to add more information. And I love people to comment on stuff. So if you see something on there that you would like to add to or you think could uh, be done better or whatever, um, would love to get feedback on that. And just for everybody to know, it's www.chefs-resources.com. So you'll put a hyphen in there if you're going to the website. And I can personally attest because I post quite a bit in Chefs Resources on LinkedIn. And one of the reasons why that community actually does well and has 30,000 members is because uh, David doesn't let people just post that garbage stuff like, you know, meet your Russian bride stuff in there. He kind of moderates the, <laughs> the group. So you don't have to worry about a, a lot of BS posts in there. It's actually really good stuff. And he's also really good about moderating because I was getting a little overzealous there for a while and he reined me back in. So uh, thank you very much for that. And, uh, and thank you very much for being on the podcast. I think this was a, a great interview and I hope everybody here enjoyed it. And so my thank you to Chef David Buchanan for coming on at the Order Up show. And uh, we will, uh, we have a bunch more interviews coming up in the next week or two. So just keep uh, keep an eye on that. And obviously, if you're on an Apple device, please subscribe via iTunes. So all the podcast updates will get set right to your devices. So thank you, Chef. And uh, have a great day, guys. Thank you, Tommy. Greatly appreciated being on the show with you. Oh, you're welcome.